Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon. This sermon is part of a series called Trumpets and Seals, where we are preaching on Revelation chapters 4 through 11. One of the convictions that has led me to do this series at our church is that the book of Revelation is often a book that people are interested in, but fail to be impacted by. My hope is that this series will change that, at least for some people. With that in mind, I want to invite you to visit the webpage that corresponds with this series. It is wilsonville.church trumpets. On that page, you can watch the sermon videos, but more importantly, there is a respond button that makes it easy for you to reach out to us about the series. If a sermon in this series is impactful to you, I'd love you to reach out. Or maybe you have questions about one of the passages we preach on. Don't hesitate to click on that link and send your question to us. Revelation is a difficult book to understand, even for me, but I'll try my best to answer you. There's one more reason that I want you to visit wilsonville.church trumpets. I'm hoping to put a resource there that offers more insight into the details of the book of Revelation. Like I said, my focus in this series is to show people how God can impact their lives through the book, but I know there's a lot of stuff that interests people, and I want to provide something around that. That resource will be on wilsonville.church trumpets, so make sure to visit the site. Who knows? It might already be up when you hear this. Again, thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. I hope it will be impactful. In fact, I hope that it will help you to learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Uh, I learned something this week, and it's that Jewish people see mercy and justice as two sides of the same coin. And I actually think that that's kind of a really hard thing for us as modern Americans to agree with, to feel. Uh, we, we, we see, uh, like, either you give somebody justice or you give somebody mercy. Like, these are the, the two choices. Either you punish somebody or you take away punishment. And for Jewish people, they just didn't see it that way. And I think a big part of that for them, and maybe we can see this, is that somebody's the victim of evil, right? And so in that regard, uh, to offer that person mercy is to make sure there is justice for that person and at the cost of somebody else uh, in some way through punishment. Um, and in this passage, we, we really see it, I think. We see the, the kind of this paradox of justice and, and mercy. Uh, interesting, we see this other uh, seemingly paradoxical idea of God's sovereignty or all-powerfulness and the fact that our prayers are effective. And so here in this passage, we see both the, the mercy of God and, and the justice of God, even the punishment of God, and both of those are held up as true. And we see, uh, I know disconnected points, it'll come together, um, but God's sovereignty and the effectiveness of our prayers come together. And, and in all of this, we're going to see encouragement to keep serving God when it's hard. For those of you that haven't been around, I am preaching my way through the book of Revelation. You're going to hear this if, you hear, if you're here one week or you're here through every sermon that I preach on Revelation. You're going to hear this. The point of this book is to encourage Christians to continue to serve God even when it is hard. It's, that's the point. And sometimes with the book of Revelation, I'll just say this again for those of you who haven't been around, we make it this book of interest and not this book of impact. It's like, well, what's that about? But not, we don't ask, how can that change my life? And here at the beginning of uh, Revelation 8, it will be easy 
for me, and, I, and some of this will happen today just to explain things and for all of us to go, well, that's interesting, but not to see how we can be impacted through it. And I'm hoping that I won't leave you there, but we'll see that in God's both justice and mercy coming together, there is encouragement for Christians to live for Jesus when it's hard. And I also think there's an incredible warning for those who haven't chosen to live for Jesus. Here's how it begins. Revelation 8.1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. We've come to the seventh seal, and so I need to back up and remind you of exactly where we are in this book. I think that's important. In chapter 6, we see Jesus opening these seven seals, like a seal that would go on an envelope. And in that, we see terrible calamity following these Seals, the first six seals anyway. And the chapter ends with the opening of the sixth seal. And there is this punishment. It seems like a final punishment specifically on people who oppose God and persecute God's people. Then in Revelation 7, 1 through 8, we see this group of 144,000 people and they're sealed by God. And I told you that the point of that, the impact that we should find in that is that we who are sealed by God, who have become Christians, we can know that even if the natural disasters of earth hurt us, even if things go badly for us, we will never be punished like those who oppose God and persecute his people. We will not be punished in the same way. In fact, we won't be punished because we've been declared innocent through the blood of Jesus. And then in Revelation 7, 9 through 17, there's this amazing picture of what those sealed people have to look forward to when they enter into the gates of heaven after they die or even when Jesus comes back. But in this case specifically, it was about when they die, then they look forward to this time in this place where there will be no more thirst or hunger or sunburn. And in all of that, there will be no more tears. And I talked about how one of the reasons that we know it's worth it to serve Jesus, even when it's hard, is that heaven will be this incredible, joyful, worshipful, party-like atmosphere. Now, it's also important, I think, to look forward as we come to this seventh seal. In Revelation 7, 6, which will be for next week and on, running through Revelation 9. We'll read more about the punishment that falls upon the inhabitants of the earth. But in our passage today, we see this new description of punishment, and we'll talk about that. The description is that of trumpets. But first, big question, bigger question than it probably should be, what does the silence indicate? Let me just... Let me just totally be honest with you. I don't think anybody knows at all. Like, I probably read about this too much this week. Like, you probably would have rather had your pastor doing something else about than reading just about what this silence means. I mean, the ideas range from a representation of the end of history to the quieting of heavenly beings so that the prayers of God's people can be heard to an awkward pause because nobody wants the difficult task laid before um, the angelic beings, in this case, to punish people. I, I really, I hate to see it as like an awkward pause. That's a long, awkward pause. Like 30 minutes is a long time of silence. And so, uh, so here's, I mean, look, I mean, you just hear that, right? And you're like, okay, yeah, it sounds like nobody knows. But let me, let me try to give you some of the views as I've done throughout. And if you haven't been with us, the way I'm kind of doing this is 
I give the views, and then I try to get back to how those things can impact us, no matter what view you take uh, out of it. No matter what view you pick, there's still impact for all of us. So preterists who see the book of Revelation about, as being about first century events, they see the silence as a short break in Palestinian persecution. Historicists who see the book of Revelation as, as a uh, timeline through Christian history, I know it's a little more complicated. That's the one that I think you look at me and go, what is he saying? But like, you know, you start at the beginning. It's like the beginning of Christian history. Like here's Jesus. And then and as you move, like you move chapter one is here. And chapter four is like 200. I'm making this up. Chapter six is 600 AD. Chapter nine is 1200 AD. And you move all the way down to the present day. Does that make sense? They see it more specifically is the interval between 324 and 395 AD. So for all of you people who have no idea what happened in those years in history, um, all of you who are as good as world history as me, this is like when Constantine defeats Licinius, and then we have Alaric's revolt, and all the way to the death of uh, Theodosius. I may have said that wrong, but you'll forgive me, I'm sure. Uh, futurists see it. This book is primarily about events that surround the second coming of Jesus, and they see it just as a lull before the storm. Or in other words, a momentary break before more punishment falls upon earth. And then idealists who see this book as just being about lessons and ideas and theology, no time period. They see it as awestruck silence before the next things are revealed to John. Now, in that, you say, okay, so nobody knows. Why would you tell me all that? Nobody knows. But I do think that in all of that, you see somewhat of uh, what one author called the drum roll. It builds tension for us. Craig Keener says, the world will one day be silenced before God. The arrogance of the political academic and other elites who ridicule or ignore God will be silenced. And so there's one like idea behind it, but it builds some kind of tension. Like I think that we're left going, what is going to happen next? What are we going to read about next and so we may find application like Craig Keener's and say okay as, as there's this pause then then maybe like I'm, I'm meant to see within this pause that that all people will be silent someday and yes that's important for us because more and more in our country and I'm not somebody who like hates America or you know thinks that you know we're necessarily gonna be done in a couple of years or whatever it might be but in America there is a growing adversity to Christian beliefs and more and more we're made by the world by media to look stupid for our beliefs and I do think we find a little bit of encouragement here to go someday all will be silenced before God even for those of us who are Christians we have these moments where we think man I would love to tell God that he's doing it wrong don't we? I mean, if it's a, our personal lives, if we, we prayed and, and God didn't say yes to our prayers, there's at least a feeling of like, man, if God would just do it my way, then he'd do it the right way, but he's up there doing it wrong. And there is, I think, the sense within some of us, like, I would love to give God a piece of my mind. Sometimes we think we know better than God. And here, maybe we see some application that suggests that we should remember that ultimately... We'll just fall silent when we see the final works of God. We're not going to give God a piece of our minds in heaven. We're going to be awestruck. 
But I think there's more here. Uh, I want you to consider that hour is a really important word in the books that John writes in the Bible. Our church studied uh, through the book of John last year, actually, and several times we came to places where the word hour was used. Probably most famously, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. He doesn't mean the literal hour there, right? He means my time is not complete. I haven't finished the things that I need to finish yet. My hour has not yet come. So what would a half an hour be then? I think it means something like incomplete, probably. Whether you take it as a future event or a past event or no event at all or some event in 324 AD, like no, no matter how you see it, it appears here that, that through this apocalyptic piece of literature that uses numbers in a really symbolic way, we should maybe connect it to how John uses that word elsewhere, hour, completion, and go, wait, a half hour then would be incompletion. It's not complete yet. So why? Why this delay? Why hasn't everything been finalized in this moment, in these moments that appear so apocalyptic? It appears like Armageddon, right? And, and, and yet we see this thing that symbolizes something being incomplete, a delay. And I think Jim McGuigan says it really well. God does not relish the idea of the wicked dying in their wickedness. The church is being told that God has a care for even the oppressor. And who among us is not grateful that he delayed until we saw the light? Be slow to anger and slow to wrath are not just words with God. I love the idea. And I think he might be on to something that in this half hour of delayed silence, we see God pausing out of mercy so that people might turn to him and not experience the punishment that we are about to read about. I mean, it's easy to skip over these little details and nuances in this apocalyptic book and think that was weird, but it sure seems really angry and mean, and to just miss these little signs of God's mercy. Yes, in this story there is, and what we'll read, especially next week, like there is this clear statement about God punishing those who oppose him and oppress his people. And there is encouragement for Christians in that. We've talked some about that already. It's good to know that we will be justified someday in our stand of faith for Jesus. That is good. But at the same time, it's like God saying, I am slow to anger and abounding in love, as he says so frequently in the Old Testament. And I just want people to come to me. And it's no short time, right? This is not a short pause. 30 minutes of silence is, is awful. So I want to I just be silent for a second. Um, I was debating whether to do 30 seconds or a minute. I didn't know if I could handle standing up here in front of you for a minute. But uh, my clock just went from 1049 or 1048 to 1049 on my iPad. And so let's just sit here in silence until 1050. Okay, here we go.
a bit uncomfortable, right? And to go for another 29 and a half minutes, I mean, we would be squirming. It would be weird. I, I experienced a little bit of that once <clears throat> as a youth pastor. I um, whispered in uh, Sean's ear, who is our music leader. I said, Sean, after you're done, I'm just going to let you pray. And uh, Sean was very talented at uh, doing music for young people especially. And, and so I really trusted him kind of in these moments where God's spirit was moving powerfully. I trusted him to feel that moment, and he was very good uh, with youth ministry and music leading. Um, so Sean finishes this song, and he was good with silence. Guy took his shoes off when he led music, and he's fine, and, uh, and, and, and he, it's going, and it's going, and it's going. I'm talking minutes, and this is high school kids, and we're crammed in this little room at a youth retreat. I mean, crammed, and it is going. And it's going, and some kid starts cracking their knuckles, and it's like, this is this is not good. But I trust Sean. I'm like, all right, he's got a plan here. He's sensing something I'm not sensing, and I'm thinking, God, like whatever you're doing, do something different. You know, like this is no good anymore. And finally, I get up. I can't. Or no, he gets up. I'm to, I'm still trusting Sean. He, he's just walking with his guitar as quietly as possible, and he goes, Dude, are you gonna pray? And I was like. I told you to pray, and then we just laughed in the moment, totally ended. It was incredibly uncomfortable, uh, and silence will do that for you, and I think in the length of the silence, I think it calls us, no matter what viewpoint we take, to go, I should stand in awe of what God is about to do. I should be awestruck by who he is and what he is going to do on this earth. It, it should create fear in me, but also I should recognize that God is holding out. He wants to be merciful to people. And then verse 2 says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before me, before God, not before me, and before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So Jewish people actually believe that there were seven archangels or leader angels, if you will. And uh, some of that's been passed down to us, right? Because if you've been around the church, then you know Michael and Gabriel. And, and you might even like say, like, hey, I think they were the the archangels like that's who they were like that and and so we have some of this idea but I want you to remember that numbers in apocalyptic literature revelation is an apocalypse numbers are really symbolic and seven stands usually for the number of total completion fullness perfection and, and so perhaps we see this perfect number of angels but more importantly this other question what are the trumpets why trumpets now, the trumpets are going to be blown as this next series of events unfold. So the seals were opened, tragedy, punishment. Now, the trumpets are going to be blown, same idea, same types of things begin to happen. And so the first question about these seals, and I know this is really an interest thing and not an impact thing, but I do think it's important for you to know. And, and as I you know, try to impact you through the words of Revelation, I also just want you to understand the book better. And I hope you can walk away and somebody says, Revelation's weird, and you say, hey, I got some things to say about that. You want to talk about it? Probably, you know, just a little anyway, just a little of that. And so there's this question that people ask, and I think it's important. Like, are the trumpets... And the seals and the bulls that will come, is this a sequential thing? Like, are they all different? Or are these just duplicating themselves? And there's three views. Sequential, the seals lead to the, the, seals lead to the trumpets, which lead to the bulls, which is another group of, of, you know, great tragedies. 
modified sequential would say the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the seven bulls. That makes sense? No, somebody looked away from him. Nope, don't look at him. Don't look him in the eyes. Uh, the seventh seal would be, it would encompass everything in that single seal, would encompass everything in the trumpets. And then the seven trumpets, is that what they sound like? I don't know. Like that would encompass all of that is in the seven bowls. And the final one would be that they are one and the same, that this is a story told in three different ways. The trumpets, bowls, and seals are parallel to one another. Now, I'm not going to spend much more time about that on that. I just wanted you to know that that was out there, that these ideas, and it may come up as we move through the book of Revelation. But instead, I want to talk about imagery, the imagery of trumpets. So quickly, what do people see the trumpets as representing? Well, preterists see them as corresponding with disasters inflicted by the Romans on Jews during the Jewish Civil War between 66 and 70 A.D. Historicists see the trumpets as corresponding to foreign invasions against the Roman Empire in the 5th century, and it goes all the way through the fall of Constantine and the Reformation period and up to the feet of Papal Rome. And so they see this large history in these trumpets and the events that they talk about. Futurists see the trumpets as disasters, uh, some symbolic, some see it as symbolic, some as literal that will be endured by unrepentant inhabitants of earth surrounding the return of Jesus and idealists, well, they're like, hey, I see a connection to the plagues here, the, 12, the 10 plagues that took place in Egypt. And you're going to hear more about that next week. But I think for our purposes today that it's really important to ask a different question, not like what are the trumpets, what are these events talking about, but rather why a trumpet? You know, like what, I mean, he could have picked anything, right? Like the next check marks or chairs or you know like it could have been could been anything so why why the symbolism of the trumpets because i think that is where we find the impact in this passage that's how our lives can be touched by this passage is really seeing and answering the question why trumpets and man i think so much of this comes from numbers 10 in numbers 10 god tells people to blow trumpets for two reasons before a battle and in celebration, listen to Numbers 10, 9 and 10. When you go into battle in your own land against an enemy who is oppressing you, sound a blast on the trumpets, then you will be remembered by the Lord your God and rescued from your enemies. Also, at your times of rejoicing, your appointed festivals and new, mean, new moon feasts, you are to sound the trumpets over your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, and they will be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Numbers 10 is all about trumpets. Like the whole chapter is about make these trumpets and here's when I want you to blow them. And it boils down to two things. I want you to blow them when you go into battle and I want you to blow them when you're going to celebrate and worship me for the things that I have done. I think that the use of this imagery calls Christians to rejoice in our knowledge that ultimately God will bring justice but I also think within it, there is a warning to those who aren't Christians. Trumpets are loud, right? If seals, like we talked about, conceal things, trumpets, they don't. They let everybody know, hey, here's what is about to happen. And here's this moment in heaven where you have this incredible silence, and all of a sudden, do 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 trumpet sounds. 
There seems to be a warning in this. Like God wants people to pay attention. There's this other thing about the trumpets that I think is important. They were part of the Mount Sinai experience. Now some of you will be like, I have no idea what that is. But for Jewish people, this was perhaps like the most significant, one of the most significant moments, at least, moment in their nation's history. The Jewish people had been uh, brought out of slavery and oppression under the hands of the Egyptians. They were captives to the Egyptians. And God, through the ten plagues that I've already mentioned, he sets them free and they go out into this wilderness and they're kind of like, what's next? You know, I mean, can you imagine being somewhere generation after generation after generation, your family just, and then goes out into the wilderness? You'd be like, okay, what do we do now? And then they have this incredible encounter with God. In the broader story, this is where they receive the Ten Commandments, if you know that story. Um, but for our purposes, I need to read you Exodus 19, 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. Remember that. With a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled violently. As the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai. There's trumpets in that moment when they meet with God. 1 Thessalonians 4 points to a trumpet blast at the return of Jesus. And in between, when you read about trumpets in the Bible, it seems that it's frequently connected to God showing up and doing something, doing big work on behalf of his people. This is actually something I'd love to dive more deeply into. Like if any of you wants to write me a paper this week on trumpets and their usage through scripture, I would take it and read it gladly. I didn't have time to go as deep as I wanted because I read too much about silence. And so I would love for you to read more about trumpets because I'd like to hear it. But I want you to know that in Revelation 1, Jesus' voice, when John encounters him in our own book, is like the sound of a trumpet. So what do we make of this? Why does God use trumpets to, to sound off on these punishments and all these things that are about to happen? I think it's to say this. I think it's to say first to God's people, to you who are Christians, God is going to do big work. God is going to do big work. In fact, Revelation 8, 5, which is kind of the end of our passage today, I want to read that first. I'll read uh, three and four later. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you notice the same language from Exodus 19? God showed up in fire on the mountain, and, and there's smoke, and uh, the mountain is shaking. And now here we see kind of a duplication of that event in this story right before the trumpets. It's as if to say God is going to show up in a crazy way once again. Even Revelation 4, 5, going back a couple of chapters, at the throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. What is it saying here? It's saying that God, who's on his throne, lightning, this is how they're describing him, right? And in a non-literal way, lightning and thunder, and now that is going to invade earth. God is going to invade earth in a new and bigger way. Now, I think there's great hope in this for us, Right? Because we look around sometimes and say, like, why isn't God working in the way that he used to work? 
Like, is God still there? Is he still doing anything? Like, does he not see what's happening? How come I don't see the miracles that, you know, I read about in Scripture? And here is this verse to say, someday you will. Someday you will, so keep serving God when it is hard. And for those of us who are Christians who serve God and know how hard it can be to serve God, there's encouragement in knowing that God is going to show up on the scene in a big way someday. But there's incredible, there should strike incredible fear in those who don't serve God now. It should be a warning. Dun, da, da, da. Here comes the trumpet. God is going to invade earth and it's not going to be good for the people who don't serve him that oppose him and persecute his people. And so you should consider this pause in mercy for mercy and you should give your life to Jesus. You should become God's servant. I was taking my kids to school a couple of weeks ago and I have no idea how this happened. Um, but we come up, and, and uh, there's a dump truck. And the dump truck is, like, too far tipped back. The, the dumper portion of the dump truck is too far tipped back, and it's caught on, like, a, one of the telephone electric kind of wires. I don't know if it was electric or telephone. It's, like, hooked there. And, um, and so we kind of we, we get around it, and a cop is just pulling up, and everything seems fine. But its wheels are actually up on one side. So somehow this thing caught, and now it's, it's tipped like this. And so I pass it. I get my kids to school. We were probably late. Um, and uh, so we, we get to school, and after I drop them off, I go in back the same direction, and I'm passing that spot. And now it's blocked off, so you can't turn there, but I'm passing it. And there, here's the dump truck. You know, it's bigger than that, right? And it's tipped this way, right? And so I should go on this side to give you the thing. It's tipped this way. Like, it, it could just fall at any moment. And... and tip right over uh, uh, and and there is a man standing there like this underneath this dump truck that's on one half of its wheels like just looking up at it and I'm thinking what are you doing man like what is happening here he's just examining it like huh uh, he's kind of got the head tip going like what's going on here and I drive by and I think well, that's stupid and immediately I I do I hear the cop I don't think I even have my windows down going I don't know what he yelled, but dude, get away from the car, you know, like what, like the cops already having a bad morning. It was freezing cold and some dump truck driver wasn't paying attention. And I think, I think far too often that people who aren't Christians, who don't serve God, they can read passages like this that serve as a very clear warning, like the book of Revelation saying, hey, the trumpets are going to blow and, and it's going to be a sign of battle. I mean, it is, it is a sign of celebration for those who are being persecuted, but it's a sign of battle. And they're just looking at it. Wow, that's a fascinating idea. I wonder what all this means. I wonder how we got here. I wonder what the ins and outs of it are referring to. And man, I guess today I just want to be like the cop and be like, just get out of there. Just avoid it. Don't stand there and look at it. Like, choose to follow Jesus so that you don't have to worry about the punishment that is going to come. Like the silence and the trumpets for those who don't faithfully serve Jesus should be the cry of the cop and you should get out of there and you should give yourself to Jesus. What we believe as Christians is that all of us, every one of us, deserved the punishments that are described as the trumpets blow. We deserved it. But God came from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus 
He died after living sinlessly, and on the cross where he died, he paid the punishment that we all deserved. He paid our punishment. And all we have to do is believe in Jesus to become a servant of God, and we don't have to worry about this punishment that is described in the book of Revelation. In fact, the trumpet sound becomes a sound of celebration and worship and not fear and trembling. Now, it's so easy to tell somebody that. Maybe you, and and you go, that's fascinating. But what I'm saying is run, like get away, run to Jesus. Don't stare at it and analyze it and say, that's fascinating. I wonder how we got here and I wonder what it all means. Give your life to Jesus. In verses three and four, it says another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. I love that this passage falls here in the book of Revelation because we've talked about some as we've moved our way through this book, God's sovereignty. That just means that God is absolutely, ultimately, fully, totally in control. It doesn't matter, you know, if you like the election results or not, God is in control and God has always been on control. In this book, we see God sitting on the throne, the throne of heaven. God rules and he reigns. Nobody can tell him what to do. He is totally in control. And so frequently, I do, I'll just be honest with you, I don't know. I could probably give you some pastoral answer. If we sit down and talk about this, I could work this out for you. But in my deepest heart and soul, it's hard for me to put that together with when I pray it actually matters. Those don't seem to go together. Like God's up there doing what he wants. He's totally in control. He's going to move history towards his ends. Like, and yet, <laughs> I say a prayer and somehow, measly little Chad's prayer matters. tell you I don't know how to put those together and you probably look at me like well he figured it out for his sermon but I really don't I just know that they go together I just know that the Bible teaches these two things that seem paradoxical and and I know that in part because here we are in Revelation a book that makes such a big deal about God's sovereignty I mean it is like one of the key themes remember the very beginning of this vision where is God he's on his throne and he's looking all majestic and powerful and there is something in this book that is so clear God is in control God is in control God is in control and your prayers matter your prayers matter J Ramsey Michael says prayer is the engine driving the plan of God towards completion I don't know if I'd go that far but I think it's an important idea because here in this passage, it's the prayers that become the thing that sends God's presence, his Exodus-like presence, his Mount Sinai-like presence to earth. It's God's prayers that, that seemingly in this vision make that happen. There's this thing people say, Prayer doesn't change the world, but it changes me. There's a bunch of iterations of that idea. 
And I think prayer does change us. I think that's a really important part of prayer, but I don't actually think that's true. I think that our prayers are effectual and that somehow, some way, in God's sovereignty, he responds to those prayers and they actually make a difference. Now, don't hear me wrong and say, like, we just change God's mind or something like that. I don't know what it all looks like, but I'm telling you that it seems biblically that when we pray, and frankly, when we pray rightly, that God moves perhaps in a different way than he would have moved. That felt a little fuzzy on my line even there, but, um, but, but he moves in a different way than he would have moved. Now, Craig Keener says, God is sovereign, but in his sovereign plan, he has chosen to make the prayers of his people part of the exercise of his will. I like that a lot. That one I'm, I'm behind. Let me say it again. God is sovereign, but in his sovereign plan, he has chosen to make the prayers of his people part of the exercise of his will. If this is true, if in this passage we see this vision where, where God's big, fiery, billowing presence comes to earth as God's people pray, doesn't it suggest to you and me that maybe we should pray about some bigger things than we pray for? I mean, I think it's great that we say, God, my car isn't working. Please make it better. God, I'm a little bit short on my money this month, can you take care of me somehow, some way? I think that's great. But for most modern American Christians, I think that summarizes the entirety uh, of our prayer lives. And here, I think the suggestion is, as we hear these trumpets and we see this offer of God's mercy, but we also recognize that he's going to do something incredible on our behalf, I think that it calls us to pray much bigger things calls us to pray for justice it calls us to pray against the persecution that exists in the world and frankly for our, our brethren across the world that are being persecuted in ways that we can't even imagine as american christians i think it calls us to pray that god's mercy would be dispensed on more people because they would come to believe in him i i think it calls us to pray for revival in our nation and around the world I think we pray like down here, these little baby things. And in this passage, as we see God's like incredible movement in response to our prayers coming up to heaven, I think it calls us to pray things that are way up here. Man, church, we got to be a church that, that prays bigger things. Like, yes, God cares that your arm hurts today. Pray about that. But maybe find a little time to pray for the salvation of souls. And maybe, and I think this is maybe part of our problem in this country, is we're talking about how hard it's become to be a Christian. And maybe that's because we stopped praying that it would be easy to be a Christian in this country. The Bible says that we should pray for our leaders so that we might live peaceable lives, so that we might live peacefully, so that it can be easier to be a Christian. And man, have we stopped doing that. It's like weird. I told you I was on sabbatical and I went to all these churches. It's like weird to pray in a church. Isn't that sad? Prayer meetings have gone away. Frankly, if I can just be a little bit guilt trippy for one second, we can't get people to come to our prayer meeting once a month. It's the hardest thing to get people to in our church is to pray with us once a month for one single hour. 
No wonder it's getting harder for us to live as Christians in this country. At some point, we just stopped praying for anything up here, and we just started kind of praying when we had a little bit of time for things down here. Like, God, I stubbed my toe today. I know people all over the world are going to hell, but this is the most important thing to me. And in our passage, there is this call, I think, to bigger, God-moving prayer. And I hope that as we try to make this book a book of impact and not just interest, that you wouldn't leave here today and on the way home with your, your family or your uh, friends, you wouldn't go home and go, wow, I wonder what the trumpets really are. <laughs> I wonder why. There's so many ideas about that silence. But maybe you'd say either, one, I should give my life to Jesus. Two, man, I should do a better job of serving Jesus when it's hard. Or three, hey, I need to pray for much bigger, more important things. Even as I say that, I know people are like, well, everything's important to God. I just don't think you're hurt armies as important as the salvation of others. I just, maybe I'm wrong. I just don't. I'm sorry. Come to our prayer meeting. I won't say that there. Um, so when you leave today, like, just hear this warning. And you'll see all of the punishments. We'll move through that. We're not just going right through the book of Revelation. But recognize that God is both merciful and just. That God wants to pour out his mercy on people, and God will punish people. And as you think about that, and you consider his sovereignty and the effectiveness of our prayers, I hope that you would be moved to come to Jesus or to live more fully for Jesus, even when it's hard, even when you know that it will cost you something, and finally, to pray for bigger things. Let me pray that you will. Lord Jesus, I'm as guilty as anybody. I, I mean, I do show up to the prayer night, but um, I, I am as guilty as anybody of just praying about myself. And frankly, God, just praying for um, just more comfort. Like, so often I just want a little bit more comfort. And this passage, Lord, reveals to all of us uh, that our prayers really deeply matter and and so I pray that we would pray. God, we would pray bigger things. We would pray for you to invade earth, Lord. Uh, that we would pray for you to invade earth in a way that draws more people to you. That, uh, that frankly, puts an end to the persecution that, that, that people face around the world. God, in big ways in other countries and in small ways in our own, Lord. Um, and God, I just, I ask for those who are not Christians, who do not live for you, they're not your servants, Lord. I ask that you, God, would draw them to yourself. So many people just stare at the dump truck, Lord. They might even believe. I mean, I just heard it. I just, <laughs> I just saw somebody the other day in an article I read, Lord, you know this, but for the sake of those with me, God, that said, I hope hell is not too hot because they were talking about themselves going there. And Lord, for people like that, I pray instead that they would just come to you, Lord. And for those of us that are already Christians, I do ask, I pray, God, and I, I please, please, Lord, help us to live for you even when it's hard. And it's, it's not that hard for us yet in this country, but there are moments, Lord, where it's easier to tell a lie. 
where it's easier to take a shortcut, where it's easier to be a little bit unethical, God, where it's easier to be mean to somebody when you want us to be caring, where it's easier to drive by the person that, that we know in our souls we should, you know, like feed or give something to and we don't, Lord. There's so many moments where it's just easier to not serve you, Lord, but in those moments, remind us of the trumpet's blast, God, and help us to live for you anyway. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.